Our thanks to Hired for sponsoring this episode of Does Not Compute. If you're looking for a new design or engineering job, you can use Hired to get five or more job offers in just a week. They have great full-time and contract jobs from pre-screened companies, and every offer has salary and equity up front. There are jobs in amazing cities like San Francisco, San Diego, Seattle, New York City, Austin, London, and Toronto. You have no obligations, and it's totally free. Hired will actually give you $2,000 if you sign up and get a job through them, so you should definitely give them a try. In fact, if you sign up at Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute, they'll double their hiring bonus. Yep, you get $4,000 for using Hired to find your new awesome job. Make sure to check out Hired.com slash DoesNotCompute, all one word, and get ready to find an amazing new job. I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> I'm really good at that too. Just kind of in making the point, you forget the point that you're making. Yeah, I was making. I was definitely making a point at one stage there. It was going to be a good one too. I could tell. So I've been struggling a lot recently with Rails image handling. What is the best way to do this? There's so many gems out there um, that handle this. There's, you know, obviously Paperclip is one of the most well-known and Carrier Wave as well. And then you have newcomers like Refile. Refile, I recently used on a, on a fairly image-heavy app, something where there are generally 50 or more images loaded per page it's it's pretty image heavy and there are a lot of different thumbnail sizes and all, all that kind of stuff so where refile really excelled for me was that it allowed me to not have to define image sizes up front so the way that refile works is anytime an image is requested it hits your app your app requests the original file from amazon or wherever you have that stored then your app retrieves that file, processes it, which can mean resizing or whatever, and then ships that back out to the the browser that requested it. So that's super awesome in terms of flexibility because with something like Paperclip, you define your sizes up front, and when an image is uploaded, you say, okay, we need a 100 by 100, a 200 by 200, and a 600 by 600 or whatever. Right, right. And the server just goes ahead and, and makes all those for you. Right, which is great because then that means each of those has its own URL on S3 or CloudFront. And then every request just goes directly there and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, and, and the server's not processing anything on, on a page load, not having to chop anything up. Right, it only, it's only processed during the initial upload. But then the downside is, let's say you need a 500 by 500 size. Obviously, it would be wasteful to load the 600 by 600. And this is a bit contrived, but I, I think the, the example holds up. If, you, if something gets resized in the future and you have, you know, 300,000 or 500,000 images, that's a huge process to go through and have, have those all resized. I think you actually had to do that recently, didn't you? You had to make a bunch of changes and regenerate all these these image assets, right? About about a year ago, yeah. This was something that we ran into on, on another, a separate project from the ones I've been talking about. But they had, I, I think it was close to a million photos where the, the, they needed to be resized. They needed a new thumbnail size that was larger than what they had. So obviously we can't just upscale those because it'll look really bad. And that was a major process. It ended up taking 
I think I had a script running for like 30 days that was downloading each one of those images from S3, resizing it locally, and then uploading the new versions. I remember being around you while that was happening and you were stressed out. You're constantly having to check on this thing. This Like, did this thing crash? Is it not working? Is it actually doing what it's supposed to do? It was pretty stressful, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so there are a lot of great reasons to use Paperclip, but then you run into these certain issues that just kind of make it not fun. It also doesn't do stuff like if there's an error on a form other than the image itself. So let's say you upload an image and then, but you forget to enter a first name or something for a user. Then when you submit that form, Rails isn't going to have that image saved. So you'll, the, the user will have to reselect it and re-upload that image. Whereas um, both Carrier Wave and Refile both provide that support where it'll cache that. So if there's an error, the image is still there. You don't have to reselect, re-upload, which can be a, a pretty significant burden on um, on the server to have to handle a bunch of re-uploads. So the, there's a lot of there's a lot of pros and cons to Paperclip and Refile. But what I really what I really ran into with Refile is that because each request needs to hit your server, even if you're behind a CDN, you're still going to be the highest cache hit rate I've had with Refile is around 80%, which means that 20% of these image requests are still going to the server and it has to process those in a blocking manner. So nobody else can, it, that, that takes up one of the slots basically for other users. And that is a massive, massive performance hit. 20% is a pretty large number. Right. Especially when you're loading, you know, 50 plus images per page, per page request. Right. I mean, that's the CDN's job. Its its job is to serve files, right? I mean, 20% is a large number to just not have. So what will happen is that they'll get cached for a day or two, but then they get evicted from the cache because they're not getting accessed frequently enough. So let's say people are viewing pages one through three of this e-commerce site. And so all of those are always going to be in cache and they're always going to be warm. But then as soon as people start browsing to page four, those will get cached for a day or, or, you know, however long. And then they get evicted, and then the next time somebody goes to that page, all of those have to be reloaded from your server. Right, yeah. It's just more round trips, more processing power. So it's it's this crazy huge problem, and it's not easy to solve by any means. But what I'm actually using on this most recent application is a combination of Paperclip and Imagex, which has been fantastic. So Imagex is a service where... You say, okay, here's where my images are stored. Deal with that. <laughs> and basically, it acts the same as Refile, where requests to Imagex for your images, grab them from S3 or wherever else, and then reprocesses it on their servers instead of yours. So you can you can tell it via the URL. You can tell it, okay, I want this to be 200 by 150, and here's how I want it cropped. And also, I want to add like a, a hue rotate to it or something. They they provide a lot of effects, which is super cool. And then that gets streamed to your users. So when you're setting up Paperclip, do you just have do you just have the backend storing the original file size? Yeah. So I'm not in my in my Rails models. Paperclip isn't doing anything really. It's just I say okay, has attached file avatar. And then I don't define any sizes. I don't define any transformations at all. So it's just uploading that original file to S3. And then I also have Imagex pointed at that same bucket that those are being uploaded to. Right, right. So that way it knows where to find the image you give it. Yep. And so far it's been blazing fast and it kind of combines all the benefits of refile with just the ease of use of 
paperclip, which has been very, very cool. Right. I mean, you, you, you save, you save a lot of server, um, crunch time without having, I mean, you don't have to generate all those thumbnails anymore, which is great, obviously, because creating more articles, let's say there's, you know, people, a bunch of people at one time, uh, posting articles, you know, the server doesn't have to do the resizing for each article that someone's posting. It's just saving that image. Yep. It right? just take, it just takes the input, uploads it directly to S3 and then it's done as far as we're concerned. That's awesome. And then on the other side, you, you said that you can, um, how do you, how do you, how do you tell it that you want certain sizes? Is that like a, a, a query string that you append to a URL or? Yeah, it's just the, it's just the query string. You can just change, um, you, you just change. So it'll be like W equals 300 and H equals 200 or something. And you can just change those directly. There, there's a, there's a Rails gem that I'm using that kind of simplifies that. So you can do like a, I think it's IX image tag. Um, there's just a helper that's available there and you can just pass it a hash and it builds all up, builds out all the query parameters for you. That's awesome. So, so I mean, if a design changes, then it's just as easy as updating your view. Updating your view or helper. So I'm actually using helpers for all this stuff. Okay. Okay. That, that sounds awesome. And I will probably, that's probably the route that I'll end up going for this next app that I have to work on. That even seems really cool that you would be able to use this for, uh, say, responsive uh, screen sizes too, you know, serving different sized images for different sized screens. Yeah. And uh, the Rails plugin actually has a tool for returning retina images and that sort of stuff, which is super awesome. It just saves so much effort. That's really awesome, actually. I yeah, no, that's really, I'm pretty stoked about that now. And the fact that you also have access to a bunch of like visual effects, like, you know, you can do blurs and all that kind of thing directly on the server. I mentioned that to the designers working on this project and they're just over the moon. That gives them so much more flexibility in terms of like cool image stuff, which has always been a problem with the web. Yeah, I mean, not only that, but also state related things too. You know, if there's maybe a featured article, you could treat it differently or um, maybe treat all the unfeatured articles differently. Uh, I, that opens up, man, that saves so much time and um, just time, <laughs> I guess, and maybe some frustration, but I think that's really cool. Yeah, I'm really stoked on it. The whole uh, image modification thing, too, is amazing. It's super cool. Yeah, they've got, like, halftone, which looks awesome, and there's just so many different things you can do. Blurs and rotates, and they do face detection. Really? Yeah, you can have it auto-crop to faces. You can, and then you can pass like an index to tell it which face left to right that you want it to corrupt to. That, that's ridiculous. It's insane. It's so, so cool. They also do a thing where you can make a request and they return a CSS file to you that tells you the, the dominant colors in the image. So you could, you can grab that and then if you, I mean, you could use that with your JavaScript or something if you're doing like a one pager or that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's basically just the image library of my dreams. The problem is that they sponsor Spec, and they're never going to sponsor us now, because we're already giving them we're already giving them an ad read for free. For free, yeah. We can just start posting some slander about them. This thing is terrible. Sponsor us or else. I actually came across this tool called Packager, and it's for it's used for packaging uh, Rails apps or Node apps, and it has saved me a lot of time so recently so what what do you mean by package package um it actually in this case it actually turns it into a debian package so you yeah so you would take your source code and it just bundles it into a debian package and then from there you can um 
I think the example on the docs, he puts it in S3. But in my case, I actually just committed it to the repo. And then on the server I was deploying on, I just pulled it that down with the code. And then you just run the command dpackage-i, and then you pass it the file name, hit enter. And it copies all of the program files to var opt, I think it is. So var, slash var slash opt slash um, app name. And then it gives you... Um, Heroku like control. Actually, it uses Heroku build packs to put this thing together. So if you've ever deployed anything on Heroku, you would still have um, basically you could do like app name run rake db migrate or app name run uh, rake asset uh, assets precompile or something like that. So you get the same control. Uh, so after running the install, you would just run say pulse draw app run rake db migrate. It would set the database up. Pulse draw app run um, I think it was web. No, it was run scale web equals one. So that way you could actually easily scale your app up and down. So you could do scale web equals two, and it would it would turn on another instance of whatever server you're running, whether it's like Puma or Thin or whatever. This handles like gem installation and dependencies as well? Yes, yeah. So when you're bundling the package, it actually grabs all of the dependencies and bundles it with it. Um, so it won't necessarily go and grab Postgres if that's what you're using, if that's an external. So it won't bundle external dependencies like that unless you specifically tell it to. So if you've ever heard of the packager Omnibus, Omnibus will take all the external packages and throw them into one, one Debian package. Whereas Packager just does uh, the bundle, bundle install stuff unless you tell it to uh, include everything else. But in the most recent case, I was using SQLite, so it didn't matter for me. I just ran packager package app name, and then I had a Debian file. It was awesome. That's really cool. And if you make changes to the app later, um, you can rebundle it, right? And then just deploy that again? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, this client came back with some changes to the application, and I made those changes locally, repackaged it, pushed it up to the repo, pulled it onto the server, ran dpackage-i install you know app name, and it worked. So the data was all there. All the production data was there. It didn't overwrite anything. And it just installed right over the top. And then I ran app restart and it worked like a charm. So I think that day I ended up making two different changes for him. And so I had deployed it three different times and it worked flawlessly all three times. But another cool thing about this is that it gives you the ability to configure um, environment variables in the same way that you would with Heroku or with like the, the um, application.yaml file. So you, if you were deploying onto two application servers, you would just set the uh, database server IP address in that config file, and it would be there for every deploy. That's really awesome. Man, that sounds like such a huge time saver. It was a huge time saver. I didn't have to mess with Capistrano. Not that that's terrible, because you know, Capistrano's fine. But for me, this was a lot quicker and a lot, a lot simpler. I just pulled down a new updated package file, ran one line, restarted the app, and it was updated. Sure. And in this particular case, the application that you're talking about is one that it's like a template. So it makes sense that you wouldn't want a single cap file or whatever to say, oh, you're deploying to these servers all the time because that's going to change because it's something where you, you're going to like branch, make a branch on the repo and then edit that, the look and feel of it and redeploy to a different server. Yeah, exactly. So this piece of software is for our clients and they, if they want to use it, uh, we design a landing page and then the inside referral page. And so we basically just skin that, you know, as the client needs. And then all I do is package it up and throw it on a server. So I have one base 
a repository where the code lives and I make changes there and, and you know, I update like the backend stuff there and then when a client wants it, I clone the app, I skin it and I toss it on a server and it, it I mean it takes half a day, less than half a day. I can skin this thing and then deploy it and I can go back to the client and say, Hey, here's your thing. Here's a a functional app for you. That's really cool. So speaking of awesome stuff, I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet because we've been doing this podcast for a little bit now, and this is such like a, a major thing for both of us, I know. Slash Rocket. Slash Rocket is a developer community that we, so it started out as a Rails only community. It was like, hey, come here if you want to learn how, how to get better at Ruby on Rails. So we both joined during that phase. And then eventually it kind of turned into a, hey, let's, Let's talk about development in general. Let's help people learn this stuff. So this has been awesome for us um, and a bunch of other people. I think we're at like 850 people, something like that now. It's a it's a pretty large Slack. Yeah, it's a pretty big number. We've run hackathons and we have a, a discourse forum set up now. It's, it's very cool and it's an awesome way for any people of any skill level to kind of learn more about dev and get feedback on stuff. So, I mean... We have people who are literally just starting out. They've never even built anything yet coming in and asking questions. And we also have people who've been programming for years, just kind of getting sanity checks and also helping out those new people. So it's a really, it's a great way to learn or give back to the community. Well, I mean, I was using it just last week to learn and ask about DevOps stuff because I'm not, I mean, I am capable. I can make things run with DevOps, you know, but I'm not the most graceful person when it comes to that, that server stuff. And so I just logged into Slash Rocket and I asked around, hey, what's the best way to do this? Or what's a good security baseline for an Ubuntu server? And three or four different people just chimed in with really great ideas. So I was able to take notes and, you know, update some internal documentation for myself. And, I, you know, I've been programming for seven years now. So I was able just to go in and learn something so quickly. Yeah, it's a, it's a great community. And like I said, both of us have benefited from it a lot. And if that's something that sounds interesting to you, you should totally check it out. Uh, you can just go to the website. It's slashrocket.io. And you can get an instant invite to the Slack and just join up and start learning and helping other people. It's super cool. Great community. Highly recommended. So I think there is one other tool that we wanted to talk about that we've been using recently. This one is called Smooth State. And you recently used it on a client site. Can you give me uh, give me a bit of an overview? Yeah, so Smooth State is a tool uh, that will turn. It'll basically have. So you have an existing site and you plug in Smooth State. You basically just add the dependency and then you set a few variables in a config file or like a JavaScript file. And then suddenly you have a basically functioning one page app. So what it does is it takes your app and it makes all of the links function as PJAX links. So when you hit a page, it will prefetch. You can tell it to prefetch X number of pages or to not prefetch at all. But when you hover over the link for long enough, it actually sends an AJAX request and then returns that data. So if you actually click, then it does an instant transformation. There's no actual page refreshes. Interesting. So it's it's like sort of like a TurboLinks in a way then, right? Yeah, it's essentially turning... Yeah, it's essentially TurboLinks. And was that easy to get set up? Yeah, it took about five minutes, actually. Really? I, I, I'm actually... Yeah, I actually... And I think I'm skeptical more now. So when I look at frameworks or libraries, I look at the docs and it says, you know, just do this thing and it'll work. And I don't necessarily believe that anymore. And in this case, it did. So 
I went to their site and then you obviously, like I said, you link up the, the dependency and then you tell it what the container is or what it should be watching and then you initialize it and that's that's that. It'll just run. It'll work. So it allows different transitions or are you just limited to what it comes with? Yeah, so it actually provides a few different lifecycle hooks that you can go in and uh, you can actually add classes. So basically, like before before transition happens, you can tell it to add a body, a class to the body. And if you, I in my case, I used it with animate.css, and it works like a charm. So I, I I hooked into a couple of the hooks and added and removed classes, and I had smooth fades and everything running. It was so easy. That sounds really cool. And so basically, what you end up with is something that feels like a single page app but isn't technically a single-page app. Yes, it feels like a single-page app, but you don't have a lot of the issues that normally come with a single-page app. Right. It's it's a lot um, A lot of the technical difficulties are kind of removed there, the technical complexities maybe. Right, yeah. I mean, in, in this case, it makes it really easy to build a site where if you land on the first page, it renders that from the server, and then every other consequent, every other page that you visit is is brought to you via Ajax. So depending on where you land, it's it's going to render something from the server. So if something breaks, all your links will still work. The site won't actually break. It's an enhancement, not a requirement. Yes, exactly. That's very cool. And that, that kind of reminds me of, like we said, it's it's similar in a way to TurboLinks. And it's similar in a way to single-page apps, but it's not either of those. It's just a way of making things feel smoother to the user without having to go into all this complexity for your actual website. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. This also means that it's just a JavaScript library, so you can use it with anything, any backend. Um, you're not limited to just Rails like you are with TurboLinks or, or something like that. You you actually used this with Statomic, if I remember right. I did, yes. I used it with Statomic. So it's just easy to drop in wherever you want. Yeah. So, I mean, again, like I said, it... It, you initialize the, the script and then you just tell it what container to watch. And basically when you click on a link, it's going to swap out the content of that container. This for me kind of makes me think about single page apps a lot. And right now, kind of the the way that everybody does internet, as it were, is to say the, the default is a single page app. The default is like, oh, we need to use Angular or we need to use... React or whatever that is, we need to use something that helps us make this a single page app. And I think that definitely has its place. Like I love, I love Vue.js. I think it's super fun to use. Uh, it's great. Um, I've used Backbone in the past, which has been been very cool for certain for certain things. But to me, in a lot of cases, something like TurboLinks or Smooth State can kind of replace the need for a single page app. Yeah, totally. In a lot of those cases, I think that it almost does it better. Especially if you need to get something out quickly. I mean, I know there are a lot of people who are very fast in, in Angular. There are a lot of people who are very fast in Backbone. There are a lot of people who are very fast in all these tools. But realistically, it's still generally more effort than making a non-single page app. Right. Well, I mean, there's considerations you have to make every single time. Like, obviously, you don't want to break the back button. You, you, you know, if, if, if someone doesn't have JavaScript enabled, God forbid, you, your site, you know, you want to make sure your site's not busted completely. <laughs> um, you know, just, I guess, general accessibility things you don't want to break. I've always been a big fan of just writing reusable classes, just in, in plain JavaScript or now usually in CoffeeScript. 
because I'm a big coffee script fan. So I'll write even Sundial, which I, we've I think we've talked about before. The the plugin, the date time picker I I made recently. It doesn't exist as a jQuery plugin. It's just a a raw class, and you can you can just make an instant instantiate a new one whenever, and just it's just a thing. It doesn't require any DOM framework or any, it doesn't, it's not an Angular plugin. It's not a React plugin. It's just a thing that exists in JavaScript. I I mean, I'm definitely a fan of the single purpose classes. I mean, it's kind of like the whole idea of web components in a way, right? I mean, having everything be modularly based. If you need this tool, you can include that tool's code and it will just do what it needs to do. Right. There's been such a focus over the last couple of years now of making everything, oh, it's got to be a component. It needs to be a Polymer thing, or it needs to be an Angular component or a React component or whatever. And I think people have kind of forgotten in a way that component is sort of just a fancy word for class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like classes have existed in programming for a really long time. And object-oriented programming is not a new concept. You're just calling it something different, which can be very useful. I mean, a lot of these libraries do provide, a lot of these libraries and frameworks do provide useful tools for, for making components, as it were. But I think it's important to, to think about, do you really need that? Is that something that you need to add all that bloat to your application for? Maybe you do. If you're, if you're building Facebook, you probably do want something like React where you have, you know, a thousand engineers working on this product and you want something that's standardized and provides a set of tools that you are going to need. Totally. Yeah, totally. The thing is that the problems that maybe React solves or maybe Angular solves, they're not my problems. Those aren't problems that I'm solving on a day-to-day basis. And so it doesn't make sense for me to use a tool like that because it adds so much overhead. Like you said, it adds the complexity of knowing the framework, the complexity of knowing any of the updates that are coming to the framework. I mean, how many articles and tweets have you seen recently about Ember 2.0, Angular 2.0, whatever, 2.0 coming out, changing the API, and then suddenly you have teams that are working in applications that are spending so much time refactoring just so that they're they're updated to the, the latest release. I think the whole idea of web components are just super cool. I think they make a lot of sense, but it's very important to think about what your actual needs are. Yeah, yeah. Like you you are probably not building Facebook. If you are, good luck. I mean more power to you. Right. Enjoy React, but just think about whether or not that's what you need to build somebody's marketing site or to build a simple Rails site or whatever. And I think too that it's important to note that frameworks and libraries are a lot like fads right now and they're not going to be around forever. So these terms of Angular developers and React developers and Backbone developers, that's great. But why aren't you just saying a JavaScript developer? Because that's essentially what you're doing anyway, right? And when, whenever, the, whenever the, the library or, I mean, it's not a framework because React's not a framework. But whenever the library comes out that's going to replace framework, I mean, how much time are you going to spend relearning everything or changing all of your tool sets or rewriting? A big thing is rewriting all of your plugins. How many plugins coming out right now? It's like when jQuery first got huge, everyone would write everything in jQuery. Here's this, but in jQuery. There were a lot of people who hired based on that. We want jQuery developers. And that's the same thing, like, like you were saying, you, you see people on resumes saying, oh, I'm an Angular developer. No, you're, you should be a JavaScript developer. Because then you can, you can learn Angular or React or jQuery or Backbone or, or Vue or anything. Whatever the cool thing is, you can learn that easily. 
But you need to have that solid foundation of understanding like how JavaScript works when you don't have all those tools available. Exactly. I always just find it interesting um, that that always happens. I'm X developer, I'm Y developer. Like, don't get me wrong, I'm appreciative for all these things because I, I try to learn as much as I can from React and Angular and take that and apply it to my own my own skill set, I guess. But I just call myself a JavaScript developer or a programmer in general, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So I think that kind of that kind of brings us to this article by Ben McCormick. You linked this to me. Um, it's what can backbone developers learn from React? And I think you, you pulled out three really good points from this article. Yeah, the first point that I, I liked a lot uh, was that interfaces should be a tree of composable components. Uh, and I remember talking to you about this, maybe it was like a year and a half ago. When I, basically, when I was working my first Backbone app, you pulled me, you pulled me into a room and you're like, you're going to make a Backbone app. And I was like, I don't know Backbone. And you're like, you're going to do it. You know? And so we talked about how, how to make this thing. And I remember you telling me, well, you can make anything a backbone view. It can do whatever it needs. I recommend making many small backbone views that handle isolated functionality. And I think that was one of the best pieces of advice that you gave me. And I think that's one thing that we can really learn from React because that their way of, of building things, I think, is really structured in, in a good way. Yeah, it, it doesn't just allow you to make a tree. It really encourages and kind of enforces you. Make, making a tree. It's like ev everything should go inside of a, another container. You have one parent and then many children and grandchildren. Yes, and those children are, for the most part, they are concerned with doing their one chore. That's a great point. And the, the second one that you pulled out of that was that modern JavaScript leads to cleaner code. And it's not, modern JavaScript doesn't necessarily have to mean the latest, coolest framework. You know, Polymer like, who uses Polymer anymore? It was so hot for a little while. And then suddenly, everybody's like, oh, wait, Angular. And then Polymer is just kind of... I mean, it still exists, obviously. But modern JavaScript doesn't necessarily mean the latest, coolest framework. Modern JavaScript just means, you know, at the base level, it's not using on clicks in your, in your HTML. It's writing functions and doing things in a standard programming way. Don't repeat yourself. For a very long time, for many years, JavaScript was almost always written very poorly. It was code in line with the HTML directly, all these very bad things that made it not fun to work with. Just pulling things out, making sure that you don't have DOM spaghetti, uh, where, you're, where you're doing 100 different selectors, caching variables, caching selector variables, all that sort of stuff. Uh, they're all just little steps. It doesn't have to be the latest, coolest framework. It can be. That can be modern JavaScript. But modern JavaScript can also just be thinking about best practices in terms of any programming language, at least to my mind. Well, when I first read that point, I initially thought he was talking about ES6 or something like that. And my initial conclusion was like, it can lead to cleaner code. doesn't mean it's going to. It can. I mean, someone can write equally as terrible code in ES6 or ES7 as they can in ES5. Or they can write it in CoffeeScript or Dart or TypeScript or whatever. It's going to be terrible if they write it that way. But I like this idea of looking at all the new things and new ideas coming out and, and pulling what is good from them and applying them to, to how you do your work. I think that's smart. You know, I don't understand why you wouldn't do that. And then uh, I think a specific example of cleaner code is not using the DOM as a source of state, which is the number three thing that you were that you pulled out of this. Yes, never, never, ever, ever, never, ever 
use the DOM as a source of state. Don't don't check if something has a class name in order to determine whether or not you should do something. Don't act as if the DOM were a data persistence layer because it's not. It's just going to make you sad in the end. Yeah, I learned about that the hard way actually by building a calendar. <laughs> so it was it was a calendar that obviously had events in it and you each day could have multiple events and the admin could add events to the calendar and the user side could book spots in this calendar and so i that was my first kind of foray into a ui where it was completely ajax and not dependent on a, a page refresh and i remember i i remember this because it was a terrible part of my life <laughs> and i i spent all this time said it writing this code and it was so buggy. It was really, really buggy. And I remember sitting down with you and you explaining this to me, like, why don't you have that in an object? And I was like, what do you mean? I don't get that. It doesn't make sense to me, you know? Um, but after, you know, it kind of sunk in, it made so much sense. Don't, you know, don't store that. Don't check for a class because the DOM is fragile. It can, you know, it changes. And then your app will break. Um, so... I, I, I really like the idea that, you know, React is handling, they're trying to tackle this state problem because state is difficult. They're trying to handle that in a in an elegant manner, you know. Uh, Vue, I think, does a great job with this. It just keeps a plain JavaScript object. It's just plain JavaScript. Yeah, there's nothing There's nothing added to it. It doesn't ever check the DOM for anything, essentially. Not not only is that fragile to check the, check the DOM, but it's also slow. It's really bad for performance to constantly be checking for classes and uh, to determine state at least, and always be running new queries, new new um, like query selector all or whatever. Those operations really add up quickly. But I, I love articles like this where they're looking for things that they can pull out and learn from these new concepts. Yeah, and I think it, it's a very level-headed approach. Definitely get a link to that in show notes for people to check out. I think it was great. The three major things that we got out of this were interfaces should be a tree of components, like things that encapsulate other things, just because then your complexity for any given item is much lower. Second one is modern JavaScript leads to cleaner code. And modern JavaScript doesn't necessarily mean the latest, coolest thing, ES6 or or React or whatever. It just means writing it in a clean and modern way, how you would write in any programming language. And three, don't use the DOM as a source of state because it's very fragile and it's very slow and it will make you sad. <laughs> Made me sad, Paul. Thanks for listening to this episode of Does Not Compute. And thanks again to this week's sponsor, Hired. Hired is an amazing place where developers and designers can find awesome new jobs fast. If you go to Hired.com slash does not compute and sign up, they'll give you a $4,000 bonus when you accept a new job through them. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe in your podcast client of choice. And if you're feeling especially generous, give us a rating in iTunes. It just takes a second and it really helps the show. <laughs>